You are listening to First in Human, where we interview industry leaders and investors to learn about their journey to inhuman clinical trials. Presented by Vile, a tech-enabled CRO. Hosted by co-founder and CEO Simon Burns. With episodes launching weekly on Tuesdays and Thursdays. For episode 21, we chat with Jeannie Hecht. Jeannie brings 30 years of experience as an executive, CEO and COO of two different firms, and as the founder and CEO of JTH Consulting and Associates, advising VCs, private equities, as well as CEOs and executives across the life sciences industry. Jeannie, thank you so much for joining us on First in Human. Thank you for having me. I'm excited for our conversation. Well, your background needs little introduction. We all know you as a phenomenal force in the CRO industry, 16 plus years now in the space. Uh, give us a sense of key lessons learned across your career. What have you seen work, not work? And what insights do you give when you're consulting on this? Actually, Simon, I hate to date myself, but it's almost 30 years in the space. <laughs> and it's been a fun ride for all of it. I've enjoyed being both an operator within an organization's at various different levels on the commercial side, as well as on the executive side as a CEO and COO, two different firms. But as a consultant and leading JTH Consulting Associates, I'm an advisor to VCs, private equities, as well as CEOs and executives across the life sciences industry. Thought about building this business out back in 18, started to do it, put it on pause for a little bit and went back to it in full force at the end of 2020. I love thinking about the challenges that are impacting the industry and what we call the business of healthcare and the business of clinical trials and how companies can attack those business challenges to support the growth for the patients, the researchers, the physician investigators, and the employees that are counting on us. I love to work across the industry and helping a portfolio of different customers because many of them have similar issues and they're tackling those issues from different angles. Many of those issues that I spend a lot of time focusing on is around building the right team, scaling the commercial presence, and then also looking at international strategies to be able to scale their products and services outside of their original home country of origin. Tell us a little more about JTH. You said 2018. Give us a sense of what led to it to come about and starting a company where this is a founding experience. I'm sure there's a lot of interesting lessons in building it out. Yeah, it was me sitting around with my family and friends on various separate occasions thinking about what it is that I wanted to do. Did I want to go back into being an operator in a company or did I want to try to take the knowledge that I had learned over the last years and help a lot of different companies? And so I decided on the latter, I had some friends as well as some past colleagues who were interested in my support. They were scaling up their organizations or for some of them starting their organizations. They wanted my assistance in doing so. And then I spent some time also partnering with the university here. So the University of North Carolina, Keenan Flagler School of Business. I am not an alum there, but I spent a lot of time there. Partnering with them to provide opportunities for their MBA candidates to intern and to get insights into this business of healthcare and this business of clinical trials that we spend our days in that they've had only just little glimpses of during their curriculum. It's been a really fun journey. Let's talk about technology and clinical trials, something we're very passionate about here at Bile. You've seen the EDC transition, EDCs come into the industry, paper source seemingly not going anywhere. EPRO, a whole bunch of other technologies come and go, decentralized trials, the, the wave. 
When do you think of the last few years of technology adoption? Where do you think we're going to be in a few years' time? Back in the day, everything was paper. Then we had fax collect, where sites would send in their data via fax machines. Then we went to electronic data capture, and now we've evolved. I am saddened by the fact that the process takes longer than I want it to. And I'd love to see the evolution, the pace of change much faster than it is. I do believe that COVID helped us. So this was probably one of the bright and shining stars of COVID was the emergence of more healthcare IT organizations, the acceptance more broadly of collecting data at the point of capture, as opposed to on some esoteric form that gets sent in and then is entered a couple of times or on some EDC that then has to get reconciled with other data sources. I've always been a proponent for looking at ways that we can do things more efficiently and believe that our sites are expecting that. There's been recent news about how our poor research coordinators are stretched and how there's not many of them. That's causing delays in large organization sales. It's causing issues with revenue for certain organizations. When I think about what we can be doing from a technology perspective, we can be using technology to support ESG initiatives, something that I look at often as a board member. It's definitely a way to reduce our over-reliance on paper and therefore help to lead a more sustainable world. It allows us to be more efficient because maybe it can reduce the number of human checkers as opposed to edit checks that are programmed. And then also, I think it allows us to collect data in more real time that can support us with safety signals. There's a lot that's interesting about healthcare IT and how it's crossing over into the clinical trial space at a broader pace than it did back, let's call it in 2000 or 2005. The question will be, how can we continue to see the financial savings as well? And that is important. Or are we just shifting financial dollars over? So is there really a material impact on reducing the overall costs of that clinical trial? Or is it just merely moving from one pocket to the next? At which case, oftentimes then people say, let's just stay with the old, because then it doesn't require substantial change management through organizations. You have to be one of the most experienced people in the world when it comes to scaling small CROs. You've seen them go through the process of scaling internationally, building out core capabilities, reg affairs, other core skills. What do you see small CROs do well? And how do you avoid the trap of becoming one of the big CROs and all the slowness and bureaucracy that comes with many large CROs we know about? So I'll first start by saying that large CROs have built this industry. And so we have learned a lot. And I wouldn't be where I am without having worked at quintiles back in the day. So I am so thankful for my experiences there. Small CROs do have the ability to be more intimate. And so they can be more intimate with their employees. They can be more intimate with their customers. And that level of intimacy allows them to think more so about the point issue that they're trying to solve for their customer, as opposed to some of the more broader issues that are often solved by some of the larger CROs. When I think about small CROs, I think about their ability to attract specialized talent as well is often different. So we see a lot of small CROs in the niche spaces. So in the biometric space, therapeutic specialized spaces, and in myel that are really focused on a leading technology. So you can attract individuals who have that desire and focus and interest in that particular niche more so than at a larger CRO or even a mid-sized CRO that's more focused on generalizations of technology or generalizations of therapeutic area. There is a real opportunity here for the small CROs to continue to scale and differentiate on their talent that they attract, they retain, 
A lot of the small CROs that I work with and support have greater than 90% retention rates. That's amazing. Additionally to that, they're able to be a little bit more creative and flexible in their processes and the types of advice that they provide to the different customers that they're providing or supporting. So I think that small CROs offer a really nice solution to the larger CROs at times for some of our small and mid-sized and even large customers. You've spanned a few different therapeutic areas in your career. You've seen the oncology space through your time at Quintiles and across the board. You're now quite focused on ophthalmology. You see a lot in ophthalmology. I'm curious what your thoughts are between therapeutic areas, nuances, operational challenges, what's out to you and seeing a wider right now. Everyone is struggling with the same problem, which is finding the right patients to deliver the clinical endpoints that are expected by the agency to obtain approval for a product. Everybody has that same challenge, regardless of whether or not you're in ophthalmology or oncology. They all have their own little nuances because their clinical endpoints might use different assessments. And so how do you capture them in an oncology study? And how is that different than an ophthalmology study? And who do you have to partner with in order to be able to have the technology to deliver those endpoints and therefore that data to the agency. What I like about the specialization and the different therapeutic areas is that I've always been in one that people can get behind. You can really get behind supporting somebody who has cancer, be it acute or terminal. You can really get behind somebody who has lost their vision or is at the possible threat of losing their vision. I've always worked in what I consider more tight-knit community areas. So ophthalmology is a very small specialty where everyone knows everyone, right? Oncology, similarly, even though it's a little bit bigger, but similarly, you know who the KOLs are, you know who provide the right clinical endpoints to get your products approved, you know the right technology providers to use. The common thread there is network, making sure you have the right network, making sure that you're building the right relationships within that network, helping to make sure that all boats rise. So not trying to have a win-lose, but trying to have a win-win across that network. And also, I think more importantly, really understanding that subspecialty down to the provider level who oftentimes isn't always in the discussion and they need to be in the discussion. So I love the specialization and I think that there's a lot of similarities across the niche therapeutic areas. And last question for you, Jeannie. You're now on several boards. You see a lot of what's happening. Technology vendors, CROs, new pharma services companies come up. You see a lot of teams being built, too, to go tackle some of these problems. I'm curious, what are some of the lessons you learned in building strong executive teams, strong cultures at the companies you work in? And what advice do you have for early stage founders trying to do the same? Number one, it's about the culture that you build within your organization. Everybody wants to feel like they're empowered to lead and control their own destiny. I had a boss tell me a long time ago, you get what you organize, you get what you measure, and you get what you incentivize. And I've lived by that ever since. For some of the smaller companies where there isn't clearly defined roles or responsibilities, where there isn't clearly a defined owner for a particular key true north metric, where there isn't a particular owner for a deliverable, you can run into some serious issues. And how I always encourage the organizations that I've worked on, I've not always used that language, I've learned that language over the last several years, is to make sure that the teams are empowered, that they understand what they're accountable for, they understand how they're going to be measured, they understand what decisions they can make without everything having to go up to the CEO, for example, because that can get really exhausting. 
I also believe in empowering the lowest level within the organization because they're closest to the problem, making sure that they don't feel like they have to climb up eight levels to try to get a decision made. That also makes your customers mad because then your customers are waiting days and days for a decision. You have to have the right people in the right role. There are no friends of Jeannie. There should be no friends of Simon in some of these organizations. As a result, you're not making decisions based upon trying to maintain your friendships. You're making decisions based on what's right for the company, employees, customers, the shareholders. When you have employees, customers, business challenges, things aren't always going to go as planned. I think it was Dennis Gillings used to say that all the time that when you have employees and customers, there's bound to be problems. It's about how you manage those problems and how you empower your teams to manage those problems. And the willingness also for your teams to be okay if they make a mistake, right? Those are some of the things I think is really important in building out and scaling organizations. The last thing is got to make sure you have some fun in it. You don't want it just to feel like a J-O-B. You want it to actually be a fun experience. Well, with that, thank you so much for joining us today. I really enjoyed the conversation and we think really highly of the work you've done in the space. I appreciate all the advice that you've given us. So thank you. My pleasure, Simon. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, and Google 